We've been going through a uh, series, the seven churches of Revelation, Dear Church. And we've looked at the, the church of, did an, an introduction, introduction on Revelation 1. We looked at Ephesus. We've looked at Smyrna. Uh, we're going to look at Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. But today we're taking a parenthesis. The church at FAC, uh, what might the Lord have for us? And, and this morning, I just want to share more out of my, my, my heart than in a sermonic sort of a deal. Um, you know, we, my family celebrated one year being here just a couple of weeks ago, and we, we uh, closed June 11th last year, and so my, my family's been here for a year. I've been here for about 18 months. And you can imagine being 50 years old and, and transporting your, your family from an established part of the, the, the world, their world, to a place where they don't know a soul. That can't be an easy thing. And to put them from a place that is established without them and is very happy to, for life to bend the way it was without them being there, that sometimes can create some angst. And uh, you know this has been a, a challenging year in many ways. But it has been a glorious year in many ways. I've seen God's hand in some ways I've never seen before. So sometimes folk will come up to me and they'll, I'm so sorry. Please don't be sorry. I'm very, things are good. Uh, hard sometimes. We all go through hard stuff, right? But things are good. I'm very glad to be here. And you can guess, perhaps over the year, of all the shifts and challenges that have come up, which one has been the greatest uh, issue for me. But let me tell you that I'm relatively certain you'd be wrong in your guess because that which has caused me more consternation uh, far and above anything else has been this issue of vision for the church. I knew before I came that my number one job for this first year would have been uh, seeking God's will, his mind on the vision of the church. And I have spent more time in the prayer room and more time in my office and more time in here when y'all aren't here, just on my face even, saying, God, what in the world do you have for me? Riding the, walking the peripheral of this place and getting in my car and driving through some of the neighborhoods around here saying, what is it you, do you have for the church, Lord? I have read books and blogs and essays. I've talked to pastors and PhDs in, in leadership. I have I read through the Bible every year, and so I read through it this year with the idea of of God. What plan do you have for your people in the world? What what does it really look like? And so I've wrestled through all of this stuff. You know, part of this whole idea of of vision is looking into yourself, because who God created me to be and what He's poured into me over the years. I don't believe anything is accidental. I believe it, uh, it has its purpose and reason. And when I look into my own, own heart and look into what's kind of driven me over the years, there's been a couple of things since I've come to know Christ. One really has been evangelism. I don't have the gift of evangelism. It's not a natural thing for me. It's not an easy thing for me. You know, I, I uh, glory in the Apostle Paul. You'd think Paul had the gift. Well, I don't know. He's in prison, and, and I think it's in Colossians, and he says, pray for me that I may be bold to speak it as I ought. These kind of scared him to death, maybe even as well. Uh, but yet I, I knew that this is what we were created for. The one thing you can't do in heaven that we can do down here is bring people to him. So high school, God allowed me to see a dozen of my friends or so come to know Christ. 
uh, I was president of the youth group in my small church, about 70 people on a good day, when, including the babies in the nursery. And I, I, I remember president of our youth group, I announced to the youth group that we we're going to go to Six Flags the next Saturday. It wasn't terribly far from our house. and uh, So come on out. So the youth group came on out. And I got them there Saturday morning and I said, you know, we're really not going to go to Six Flags. We're going to do something better. We're going to go door to door witnessing. I don't recommend you do that. <laughs> I'm surprised I'm still alive. Uh, suddenly people realize other things they had to do. But anyway, um, after I went, got done with high school, I went to, to, to Moody. But in that summer, I went there for about a three-week, I guess, class, open-air evangelism, how to share your faith I'm mean, out on the subways and, and on the street corners and showing the Jesus film and the projects. Fascinating. When I got to school, when I got to Moody, I was in charge of student outreach. We took 30 to 150. 50 students out in the streets every Saturday night to share our faith. It's kind of something that was inbred in me or uh, part of where I was. Also, a second driver was uh, in a desire to know him through his word. I believe the primary way to know God is through his word. And uh, when I when I went to Moody, my goal Going there, more than anything else, was that I might know God's word so that I can know him. My prayer has been, and I know it's an ambitious prayer in some ways, and probably has a lot of other stuff mixed in there uh, that maybe aren't so, isn't so good. But I pray, Lord, please help me to know you better than any other mortal has ever known you. And so I would strive to get into his word, to, to, to know him. Uh, you can imagine my excitement, you know, as I got into the word. And I realized that these two thirsts were not my own doing. They were infused in me by him. I mean, it's all over the place in God's word. It's everywhere in there. You see it in, um, when Jesus first calls his apostles. He doesn't call them to take them to heaven one day. He doesn't call them to make their life fun or to give them significance. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is why he's called us, right? And then at the very end, when Jesus is getting ready to leave, he has a word along that same line in Matthew 28. Matthew 28. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples, not make converts. Make disciples. You know, in that text, it's really the only imperative. That's the only verb you, you have. That's the big idea. Make disciples. That's it. That's the command. There's no other command. But now he's going to unpack what that looks like. And it's important for us to know what that looks like since this is what he's going to hold us responsible to, to do and be one day. This is baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of baptism, I alluded to this earlier. Um, Baptism in the book of Acts in an early church is synonymous with salvation. Again, the New Testament did not know of a believer who came to know Christ here, and then years later they were baptized. It just didn't happen. Remember Acts 8, Ethiopian eunuch? This guy's reading and driving at the same time. It's something I wouldn't encourage you to do. But he's reading. He's in his chariot. He's driving. But he's reading Isaiah. It would come to be known as Isaiah 53. But he's reading this. And Philip is, I don't know if he's hitchhiking or what. And the Ethiopian eunuch picks him up. And he says, oh, I see you're reading there. What are you reading? He says, oh, I'm reading Isaiah. Well, do you understand this? No, I don't have a clue. But it's intriguing to me. So Philip says, let me unpack this for you. And he shares with him Jesus. And, and the eunuch, as he's, as he's checking this out, he's hearing this. The lights come on and he believes. And so what does he do? This is fascinating to me. He, he pulls on the brakes 
And he says, look, there's water. What prohibits me from being baptized? Philip hadn't said a word about baptism. What's what's he thinking? He knows. He's just been in Jerusalem. He he, he knows that, that baptism is kind of like the initiation rite. When you decide to join the church, when you decide to come into following Jesus, you're baptized. It's like, it's like a, a wedding ceremony between you and Jesus. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you a believer. And I think that's why we accept Christ here and then get baptized later sometime. We might have swung the pendulum too far. I'm not sure. But, but it's a realization as I go under the water. That I've been buried with Christ, Romans 6. My sins have been washed away. Then when I'm raised, I'm raised anew. By the way, I don't know if I've mentioned y'all, we got a baptism coming up. If you've never been baptized, you should think, think about this, right? And so it, it's, it's, when Jesus says, make disciples, first part, first piece of this is, is baptizing. Bring cop, make converts, okay? Get, 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 them, get them in the door. Get, get them believers. Make them believers. But don't stop there. It says, then what you have to do is teach them to obey Everything I've commanded you. Notice that. Not teach them to have the knowledge. Teach them to understand stuff. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is, this is significant. That, that Jesus is not telling us that our goal in life is to make converts. You know, growing up, this was huge for me, man. All you want them to do is pray that prayer. You know, if they pray the prayer, they're in. Right, so you pull them, you get them, you get them to pray the prayer. And once they've prayed the prayer, yeah, they're done, they're in. Pray the prayer, good job. And go on to the next person. And we want them to raise their hand or sign the card or come forward or pray that prayer. And we're all done. They're good. It's finished. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. It's just started. It's just started. You're not done at all. You need to keep moving now because now you have to get them transformed. You have to teach them to, to apply. You know, what, what we've mentioned before is that when we look at life, we've been discipled by our world and our culture. I hope you recognize that. You have been. If you, unless you grew up in a cave someplace. If you grew up in a cave someplace, you've been discipled by your own evil heart in many ways. So it still works. But, but our views on, on, on money and time and recreation and work and sex and marriage and, and life and, and priorities, it's, it's all skewed. It's like growing up in a, in a house of mirrors. Or it's kind of warped. We have a warped view of all of those things. We don't know any, anything else. This is what we know. Maybe we grew up seeing it. Maybe we've just seen it through our friends or through television, television. And this is just what we know. But Jesus says, sanctify them or grow them or, or give them a straight, clear picture through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so as we are here. And as we are seeing and understanding and asking God to help us, he helps us see all these aspects of his life through his eyes. It's what they call developing a Christian worldview. And we begin to live that out. That is what Jesus is saying. Teach them to obey, to apply, to do what I've said. That's God's word. Now, as we put these two together, let me mention one more element just before we do. In Acts chapter 2, uh, Jesus is, is getting ready to leave. This is uh, Luke's account. Uh, Jesus says to them, you will be my witnesses. Right back to this, make disciples of fishers of men thing. You will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem. Okay, it's their hometown. Then go on the whole world. That's great, but you're starting in Jerusalem. Okay, understanding that. This would be our, our mission statement, I think, from God's word. It's transforming Erie. Transforming Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus. And yes, we'll certainly do social things, 
But that's not how we're going to transform Erie primarily. It's through introducing them to a transformational relationship with Erie, with, with Jesus. First about Erie, I hope you all recognize that Canada went off the list of Christian nations several years ago. They are now considered a secular nation. The United States is right behind. I think practically speaking, we're already there. It will be, won't be very long before we're removed from the list of Christian nations. Hope you realize that other nations, Christian nations, are sending missionaries to the United States on a regular basis because we are a secular nation now. Uh, you, you know as well as I do that 50 years ago, the media, uh, which will reflect culture quite often, was maybe not kind to Christianity, but, but respectful of Christianity and respectful of God and respectful of the Bible and respectful of church. You didn't find the media bashing those things, generally speaking, too often 50 years ago. Today, we live in a hostile culture to Christianity, and it's only going to get worse. The Lord has placed us here in in Erie for the purpose of making uh, disciples, introducing people to transformational relationship. Again, people to be transformed not just pray that prayer, not just raise their hand, not, but to be transformed, to be changed. Now, the picture that I, I even used several weeks ago, and it's just stuck in my head, is that idea of a spiritual greenhouse. Spiritual birth is spiritual. You can't make that happen, right? How many times have you tried to? I wish I could. I'm sure you've tried. You try to drive it into someone's head and you push it all you can, and they're looking at you with that glazed look, and you know they're just not getting it. Spiritual birth is spiritual. We can't control it. Spiritual growth is spiritual. Now, we think that we can control that one. We can get them to say the verses and they memorize the stuff and we'll teach them things. And that's spiritual growth. That's not spiritual growth. That's like teaching them like you teach them geometry or something, which is wonderful. But until the spirit interacts that in their life, it's not spiritual growth. We can't control those things. But what we can control, we can build a spiritual greenhouse where all of the pieces, the humidity and the, the, the temperature and the, the fertilizer, it's, we, we can control the environment in such a way that is best, most ideal for growth. That, that takes all the cultural obstacles that you and I bring to the picture and removes them so the spirit can do its work. We can create a, a spiritual greenhouse. Now, our, our Jerusalem, what's our Jerusalem look like? Erie, Pennsylvania. Been immersed in, in demographic stuff as well. There are approximately 280,000 people in the greater Erie metro area. Uh, it's interesting to call Erie a metro area, but they do. The Erie metro area, 280,000 people within 30 minutes of the church. Uh, average person will travel anywhere between 10 and 30 minutes to get the work. They tell us that people will go to church, travel as far to church as they do to work. So our net can go out 30 minutes, which incorporates just about everybody in the Erie metro area, 280,000. It's been estimated, and this one's hard to, to nail, but national averages, and it's been estimated that 240,000 of them are currently spiritually lost. They don't know God. They're, they're without him. They, they, they don't. There's 240,000 folk in our backyard, in our Jerusalem who right now are on their way to hell. That's a very uh, sobering thought. Uh, we are missionaries starting the, here to, to Erie. Uh, also, you, you know, there's uh, population in Erie's declining. 
Not a problem. We're not to worry about that. This is the mission field. I think if we look at it that way, that this is my mission field. Uh, what that tells us, though, is that we don't have a lot of influx of, of, of folk, transients coming in. Where when they come in, you know what? They have to get connected to somewhere. And so often they will click into a church seeking that connection. Well, we don't have that, which means we have to go for them. We have to go out after them. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to become a spiritual greenhouse? How is that going to look? Well, there's a seven-point plan. Since we're in Revelation, there's lots of sevens. We thought we'd throw another one out there. A seven-point plan, a way to do it. Um, and again, I, I wish I could tell y'all that this is a word from the Lord, and this is kind of come off the mountain, and this is engraved in rock by God's finger. Just having spent a, a, a ton of time, uh, this makes lots of sense. This is, I think, one of the things that we have to, to have an emphasis on is on Sunday morning. Erie is a traditional conservative area. Very Roman Catholic, if folk are going to go, if people are going to try to seek out who God is, if they're having issues in their life and they're going to try to figure out how to find help, it's their inbred education to go try it out at church, figure out, find it at church. And so if they come, they will be coming on a Sunday morning. Uh, and you know as well as I do that some folk may try it out, we get one shot at them. If they come in and they've had a bad experience for whatever reason, that's it. We've had one opportunity. Also, folk who know Christ, you know, you live this. We live in this world and we are beat up spiritually between the media, between the culture, between our school, between some of our families. We, 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 we've been beat up spiritually. And, and we, when we come, we need to be re-energized. We need to be refocused. We need to, to join our voice with the voice of God's people and truly praise and, and get the, the benefit that, that we think we're just giving God glory. Well, God pours into our hearts at that point when we join together with his people. We have to nail Sunday morning. Now, there are two elements, and again, my own thinking, two elements to, to what happens here Sunday morning. One is, is outside the sanctuary, and one is inside the sanctuary. Outside, picture with me, uh, single mom, she sees our, our webpage, figures out the time. Or maybe you invited a guy from work, and so he shows up one day, lo and behold, and he's got his, his family with him, and they walk through the door, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do? We don't normally go to church. And they're just kind of looking around. And you know they got something for kids here, but where, what? And no one really knows, and maybe somebody has seen them from a distance and smiled and turned around and left, and so they see the sign out there, information. So they try to ask, and they try to maybe they pull somebody aside, and they're saying, "Well, you know, I'm not sure. I think maybe you go that way, and or maybe it's over. Um, oh, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe go ask somebody else." Well, after they battled with each other for for 30 minutes and finally figured out where they're supposed to go, do you think they're coming back here? I don't know if I would. You know, Walmart pretty much has nailed this one, haven't they? You, as soon as you walk into Walmart, you know, welcome to Walmart. They've got that figured out. And, and then you ask, where's the widgets? And they don't say, well, so now maybe they've moved. I, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> they take you here. Let me show you where the widgets are. And they walk you to the widgets aisle. And the widgets are right here. We've got a few more over there. But here's where they mostly are. And that, that takes away a lot of the angst. A lot of the, I'm not sure how to waste my, I won't waste my time here. Uh, what happens outside the room is huge. You know, they say there's an eight second rule. When folk walk into a new place, they have, especially in the church, 
Within the first eight seconds, they will determine whether or not they're going back there. Uh, subconscious, but at that point they will ascertain. Now, if they've determined this is this is a bad experience, we can overcome that. But we've got we're on an uphill climb at that point. Uh, what happens outside is incredibly important. If you were inviting a friend and they just showed up, wouldn't you want what happened before they get in here to have had a great experience? And then what happens in the big room? What what would happen in the big room? We're talking about everything from announcements to sermon to music, the whole whole nine yards. Uh, intentional, well thought out. Uh, we see it. I see it as, as a, a um, intergenerational worship service, where young and old can worship together. I know there's a lot of stuff out there, and I know some churches that are doing it. They've got a traditional service going on over here. They've got a contemporary service going on over here. You know, I want my daughter worshiping with gray hair. Not with her dad. Okay, worshiping though with, with gray hair. It, it, what, what drove this home for me more than anything else, Romans 14 and 15. Fascinating study. Paul's talking to the Church of Rome, obviously. Two major factions in the Church of Rome. You've got the Jewish believers and you've got the Gentile believers. And they're not fighting about the music, but they're fighting about everything else, it seems. And, and it would be easy for Paul to say, because there's so many issues, it'd be easy for him to say, listen, why don't you just have a Jewish congregation that meets who are Christian and then a Gentile congregation that meets who are Christian? He doesn't even think about that. That's not even an option. Because we are one. We're the body of Christ. How do you learn to love one another if you just hang out with folk who are exactly like you? And so, I see, we, we, we may have to, I want to push that too far, we may have to go to different venues one day, but it would sure seem to me that, that, that biblically, an intergenerational uh, service, and I know that blended thing is a big tent, a lot of stuff can happen underneath there. And most probably everybody will feel some angst at some point. This is not a problem, it's important for us to realize this, it's not a problem to be solved it's a tension to be negotiated. As long as I am concerned for others, I will be able to negotiate that, that tension. I was out with, uh, or sitting down talking with a, a, I don't know, 22, 23-year-old guy a while back. It was so insightful for me. He said, you know, I, I do the epic thing. We had the epic stuff going on. He said, but we don't need rock and roll. Folk think, we, we don't. That's not what we need. We just need to come before the throne. I have a feeling worship is attractive. Worship reaches into our heart. It doesn't have to be what's my style preference. That ends up being more of an entertainment thing. doesn't matter how old or how long, young you are. So we have to have a, a, an emphasis on, on Sunday morning. It has to be a greenhouse on Sunday morning. We also have to have an a, a emphasis on children's ministry. Oh, this is, this is significant. If you think about it, um, we have within 30 minutes of us 50,000 50, kids aged 0 to 14 who are not believers. It's not they've rejected Christ. It's that, you know what? They've never heard of Christ. They've never heard the gospel. Either they're in a church where they're not hearing it or they're in a home where they're not hearing it. They've just never heard it. Now, when you combine that with this statistic, and this has been around a long time, and this is, uh, may fluctuate a little bit, but not much. But 80% of those people um, who accept Christ will do it before the age of 14. 
to 85 before uh, the age of 18, which, which says this. If, if you can get out of high school and not accept Christ, you probably never will. People are most receptive to come to know Christ. Heart of a child when they're young. And every year another group walks at, at McDowell on one level that the window is shut on them. We have a, a opportunity here with an incredible aspect of, of our of our Jerusalem that we, we cannot ignore. If Jesus doesn't come back for 300 years, y'all, the future of the church is in our hands. Are we training up people to understand godliness does not start when they're 21? It starts in the cradle and, and our ability to train them and help them understand and know who Christ is and grow in him. It is huge. We have to be about developing a, a spiritual greenhouse for children. We also need to be, be about building a spiritual greenhouse for youth. These are fascinating numbers and very, uh, they ought to be very alarming. Southern Baptist Convention's Family Life Council says this. They said that of all the students, high school students in their church, their churches, when they leave for college, 88% of them will also leave Christ. If you've got a student who's in a youth group in a Southern Baptist church, 88 out of 100 of them will walk away from Christ when they leave, when they leave uh, the youth group. The Lifeway says 70%. Assemblies of God study said out of their people, 66%. Barna, and this is, this is the absolute best numbers that are out there. Barna says that you only have a 61% chance of walking away from Christ if you grew up in an evangelical church, that means this, parents. Odds are that your child will walk away from Christ when they leave youth group. I don't know about you, but I look at that and I go, that's just unacceptable. I mean, that, that, that's, we can't just say, oh, well, that's just the way life is. I mean, that's a, that's a battle we got to take head on and we got to say, that's not the way it's going to be here. It's not. You know, it was amazing to me. I was at the, I was back in Wisconsin. I was on the LOCC committee. That's the Licensing, Ordination, Consecration Committee, where all the guys that wanted to be pastors in the state of Wisconsin for the alliance would meet before us and we'd drill them to death theologically. And we just got so frustrated because these guys that are trying to be pastors were so biblically illiterate. And I remember we, we wrote a couple of letters to Crown College. That was the Alliance School that, that fed our, our uh, district. Upset, saying, what are you guys doing? You're dropping the ball. You keep sending us these biblically illiterate people as pastors. What are you doing? And they wrote back, equally uh, uh, upset at us. They said, it's not our fault. It's your fault. Because when these kids come in, they used to know X amount, but now they're coming in virtually, biblically, pagan-esque. You have done a terrible job trying to raise them, and so you're giving us nothing to work with, and you should have sung when they came in. Uh, don't you think, with us, that when we have our high schoolers leave this place, that they have a biblical worldview. They know how to lead someone to Christ. They know, it's not just theory. They've done it. They know how to disciple someone. They have done it. And so, so it's just part of who they are. So when they hit campus, they're not looking for the sororities and the fraternities and they're not looking for the parties. They are looking to see how they can make a difference. We're sending the, the navigators and the campus crusade folk, godly leaders. That's what we're supposed to be about, right? That's what I want for my kids. And we might be empty nesters and we say, well, I'm glad I don't have kids anymore. No, no, no. As a church, we have kids and we will have kids. We have to have an emphasis 
on, on developing a, a children's spiritual greenhouse and a youth spiritual greenhouse. We also need to have an emphasis on community. And I wish we, boy, I wish we had time. We don't have time. Um, we're going to have a series in, the, uh, in January. But biblically, the word koinonia, fellowship, we have messed that word up huge in the West. We have turned that into being potluck dinners and some games and maybe having coffee together. Well, that is so not what biblical fellowship is. It's just so not. It is sharing from your loins. It's from the deepest part of your life, from your body. Do you have context? Let me ask you this. Where you can do the one another's of Scripture. Do you have a group of people where you can confess your sins with? Where you can rejoice over, over their rejoicing because you know what's intimately going on in their heart? Where you can weep over those things that they're not going to tell anybody else? Do you have that kind of a group? There was a... Uh, uh, Gail, Gail, true story, back back home. Her husband and one of their daughters were shooting across the ice wintertime on a four-wheeler, fell in. And uh, somehow he ended up on hard ice. His daughter's in the water still, so he dives in to get her. And you can imagine trying to get her up on the ice every time you do, the ice cracks. And so they're in there for a while struggling. Finally, she's up on the ice. Well, he's exhausted. He goes down. He doesn't come back. Uh, within two hours, she was in a, in a community, small group. In two hours, the entire group is in the hospital with her. Now, her husband had his own business, but he never told his wife anything about the business. She didn't have a clue what to do, what they had, what their assets were, what their liabilities were, what, how this works. She didn't know. They also didn't have any life insurance. We had a couple of people in her small group, a couple of guys who were business, business savvy guys. And they said, hey, we'll help you. And so they waded through for months with this, this business thing and where it was at, and they helped her figure out exactly what she needed to do. I remember the father-daughter banquet. One of the guys in the group took the girl that actually fell through with her dad to the father-daughter banquet. They kind of adopted the daughters. And I, I just look at this and I go, what would happen to this gal if she wasn't in community? Well, Church would have probably done the funerals, maybe send a note in six months, maybe brought a couple of dinners for a week or so. Then what? Uh, he has made us for community. We've lost this thing in the West. Uh, we've lost this, this Christian solidarity issue. We need to have an emphasis on small group. We may not feel like it because Erie's pretty enmeshed. My family's here. Uh, but we need that aspect. We need to have an emphasis on seniors' ministry. Uh, Back in 1987, I was a young pastor. The senior guy asked me, Mark, who should we hire next? I said, we should hire a seniors pastor. There were just two of us on staff. Well, he laughed and blew me off. Uh, but reality was, I knew. I had read a little bit, The Grain of America. You know, Erie, Pennsylvania, 123% of the national average of the category senior lifestyle. We have 35% of the people in Erie... Um, my understanding is correct, were born prior to 1960. Now, why? I don't know. But reality is that we have a mission field here and, and seniors that we would we just can't be negligent on. Now, in, in my estimation, once all the hires are made right now that are on the table, and maybe some support people, but the next primary ministerially, ministerial hire is a senior uh, pastor of seniors ministry. And we don't want, don't, don't confuse what I'm saying here, we don't want a program director for Shell Point Village North. We don't want a program director for some you know, spiritual cruise ship. That's not what we're about. 
It's not what we're about. I understand I, I, a little bit of, 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 of uh, through my physical stuff, a little bit of, of the senior lifestyle. But I know that every area of life is radically different than others. And there's different needs and there's and there's different uh, places where you are emotionally and physically and relationally and everything else. We need somebody here who has a heart for that, who has ability for that, who can help reach out to this area and harvest, who can raise up a, a, uh, a who can build a spiritual greenhouse for discipling seniors. My goodness, we need that. We need an emphasis on on missions. And I didn't want to call it emphasis on missions. I like to say emphasis on disciple making, not just in Erie, but beyond. Now, uh, how's this for an idea? In the Christian Missionary Alliance, you have to serve two years home service before they ship you overseas. On campus here, on our land, we build a two to three bedroom house Nice house, not a mansion, but a nice house. Uh, Colorado would love us. We call up Colorado and we say, your next missionary candidate, we want them. They have to serve somewhere anyway. They come here, we let them live in the home because they're there. We can pay them dirt. That works out okay, right? They're on staff at church and their kids are in our Sunday school. They're in our small groups. And what happens? Our people, we get to know them. We fall in love with them. And then when they hit the field, their, their kids on, in Ukraine or wherever they're at are Skyping with our guys in the Sunday school. And our kids are seeing missionaries, not just something my parents give money to once in a while. They know some. And when they come back home, they're, they're reunited. And these guys that, that we've got to meet, we got to grow with and love, we're going to see them on the field. And suddenly we're not throwing money into a black hole called the Great Commission Fund, but we're giving to people, real people that we love and we know. I have a feeling that our, our interest in, our emotion of missions would raise substantially. We need, we need an emphasis there. We also need an emphasis on stewardship, uh, we live in a very, of course, affluent, materialistic uh, world. We all want to hear, I'm assuming, him say one day, well done, well done. That's not going to happen, of course, if we live for today. But if we live for that day, with everything we're about, our time, our energy, our gifts, our resources, I believe we'll hear, well done. If we give everything we have to building the spiritual greenhouse in Erie, I believe we'll hear well done. God has given us a substantial piece of land in a strategic part of the city. How does he want us to use that? What does he want us to do? Is it always supposed to be an empty field? Maybe, but what, how can we use it best? As we seek to be stewards corporately and individually, I believe we can. Build the spiritual greenhouse. Now, in my estimation, and this is, I have no data on where I got these numbers, but I didn't pull them out of a hat anyway. Um, but I believe that if we, if we, if we sought to, to build the spiritual greenhouse here, within five years' time, I can imagine that we would double in size. I'm not talking about transfer growth i don't want to just get to 2000 and say oh that's success that's not success if we just stole them from someplace else that's not success the kingdom of god if it's not built it's just moved around we what have we accomplished right but if we if we double in size by conversion growth can you imagine a thousand people right now who are on the golf course or who are in bed somewhere or who are doing yard work who, who are outside of, of the covenant family they're outside of christ 
Five years from now, they're here and they're being discipled and they understand who he is and they know forgiveness. Oh, man, we we know it's not necessarily time to pat ourselves on the back because there's still going to be 239,000 who are still lost. But the neat thing about Erie is because it's so enmeshed here, so many families, that if we lead someone to Christ, my goodness, they have got instant relationships. They've got an instant field themselves. What might God want to do with FAC? I know it's not just take care of ourselves. It's to build a spiritual greenhouse, however that may look. When I was a kid, I prayed. And I, I, still, I still do. I started then. I got into the revivals in America. And I said, oh God, it would be so cool to see something like that again. Would you allow me to see a revival in America? Wouldn't it be cool if it started right here in Erie, Pennsylvania? <laughs> yeah, it would, wouldn't it? We were a part of it. Not because we're anything, but because God is something. And because he would work through us, the likes of us. Oh, man. Would you pray with me? Lord, if if we were going without you, I know it would just be a pipe dream. But I can't imagine that we want to see Erie come to know you more than you do. And we can throw our resources at it, God, but it doesn't come close to the resources of heaven and your Holy Spirit. As you wait for your people to be obedient, though, may we be that, Lord. And if in your sovereignty you would choose to not touch this place, may it not be because we didn't give absolutely everything we had, everything we were about, to see your kingdom come here. I would ask that would be so for myself and every person here. We would be obsessed. God, we would be obsessed with seeing people coming to know you and be discipled in you. That we would think through how that, that should look here, how that should work. God, would you, would you help us to be away from all of the, the petty things that we can all get caught up with sometime. And be focused purely on the building of your kingdom here. Thank you for that job. Thank you for that task. We look forward to that which you would do. Even this week, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen.